uh, I was asked if I would, uh, would, would take a figure from church history, not from Scripture, but from church history. It's been a particular encouragement to me. And uh, that's one of those things I was glad to say, yes, immediately, I'll do that. And there's no question about who it would be. Now, I, I am not a Lutheran. There's a little news bulletin for you. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a Lutheran. Uh, but we are all, as evangelicals who love the gospel, we are all in Luther's train. We, are, uh, we, we, we trace our identity and our lineage back to Luther and the Reformation of the 16th century. But there's a specifically personal reason why I talk about Martin Luther, and that is because Luther has personally uh, helped me enormously. When I was elected president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, it, it coincided with uh, my wife and I celebrating our 10th wedding anniversary. And uh, it was in the middle of all the maelstrom, and that was in the middle of an incredible fight to which we were called. Uh, it was just all over the national news. It was constant controversy. And my task was to bring about reformation within an institution and through that institution within a denomination. And... Uh, Mary gave me the Weimar Ausgabe, which is the, uh, the, the great official uh, set of the works of Luther. There are all these wonderful red bindings. And uh, if, if you come into my study, and I, I wish you could all be there sometime, but if you come to my library, there are three oil portraits of Luther. Uh, that's how important he's been to me. He's been kind of my companion along the way. My, my, my secular companion has been Winston Churchill, and my theological companion from church history has been Martin Luther. And if you know the two of them, and you know their attitudes and spirits and their tenacity, you understand why those two men have kind of walked with me in my imagination through all of this. By the way, I gave my wife a, a china cabinet. So, you know, uh, we each have a different love language, uh, you know, <laughs> mine was Luther, and uh, well, there it goes. She, uh, she knew my heart. And, and at times, I would, uh, people look at, at, uh, at my library in general, but they look at that, that, all that Luther, and they'll go, well, you know, do, do you look at that just uh, every once in a while? No, I would take a volume. I worked through every volume, volume by volume walking with Luther through the development of his mind, through the fighting of the Reformation, through his translation of Scripture, through his preaching. And it was just an enormous, uh, an enormous help to me. I have students who say, if you could live in the 16th century, would you study with Luther or would you study with Calvin? Now, again, that's an easy one. I would study with Calvin, but I want to live with Luther. And that would be like my perfect day. Study with Calvin all day, go home with Luther. And, and, and a part of that's just because Luther was more than Calvin, a man in full, as the British would describe him. Uh, th that's why there are no great oil portraits of John Calvin. Uh, he wasn't an iconic figure in his day. And as much as I am a Calvinist, not a Lutheran, if I got to take someone into armed conflict, it's going to be Luther. If I'm going to take someone into sophisticated theological debate, it's going to be Calvin. We, we know so much more about Luther than about Calvin, partly because of, of Calvin's reticence, but we also know a great deal more about Luther because Luther's life was lived on this giant canvas of a world stage. Um, you can't explain the modern world without Martin Luther. On the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, back in, in 2017, uh, Mark and Lig and I, for example, were, uh, we were in, in Germany several times. I did uh, more than 100 lectures on Luther and uh, the gospel and Lutheranism, Luther and the translation of Scripture, and Luther and his place in history during that year of uh, 1517 in Germany. And uh, I got to preach from the, from the high pulpit of uh, the Schlosskirche in Wittenberg. It's just rare opportunities. But we feel like we're walking with Luther. And so much of Luther's life is in detail from his childhood. You can go to Luther's uh, uh, Geburtshaus. You can go to the place where he was born. Now, again, as you know, the way buildings move in, from the medieval world to the modern, there's probably not a whole lot of what you're looking at that was there at the time. But it's still the continuous structure was in that place. You can go to Luther's death house. 
uh, in the providence of God in the same town. It just kind of bookends. He was born on the 10th of November, 1483 in Eisleben in Germany, and uh, he, he died on the 18th of February in 1546. So he lived to be about 62. That was a ripe old age. Uh, in the late Middle Ages, or what we would call the, uh, the dawning of the modern age. Now, Luther's biography is bombastic. It's, uh, it, it's, I mean, there are so many thrilling biographies written of Luther because his story is just so compelling. And uh, when, I was a, when I was a little boy reading, I, I discovered that my favorite reading of all was history, and my favorite genre of history was historical biography. So when I was 9, 10, and 11, I'm, I'm, I, I want to read about kings and knights and emperors. And, you, you know, I, 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 I wanted to read these biographies. And Luther's got one of those biographies. I mean, he's born the eldest son of a minor figure who uh, would, would, would be described as, as, as a part of the emerging middle class. So you're talking about the late Middle Ages, and, you, and, and, and in the late Middle Ages... Throughout most of the Middle Ages, there really wasn't anything like a middle class. Uh, you had uh, the nobility, and then everybody else worked for them, basically. That was easy. But uh, you had the rise of professions, and you had a certain kind of, of entrepreneurial rise. And uh, Luther's dad was pretty entrepreneurial. The district in which he was born was a mining district. There was money to be made. And, uh, and, and Luther's dad wanted Luther uh, to be his boy his son, who would kind of establish the dynasty in this emerging middle class. And so the way to do that was for his son to jump into the professions. And the profession that his father chose for him was law. It's also interesting that Calvin's father had the same plan. Uh, my father had the same plan. Um, fathers who want their sons to go into law may discover their sons become theologians. And... Uh, Luther's father was very upset about that. Uh, thankfully, my father was not. But Luther was, was, was sent to the kinds of schools that this emerging middle class would send their sons to. Uh, and, and so you have very much, this is a part of the history of Germany, and, and, and you, have, you, ha you have Luther who embodies so much of that time. He goes uh, to school in Eisenach, uh, perhaps most famously, and, uh, of course, that's the city associated with Bach, uh, who would be associated with Luther. And you start looking on this and get an Eisenach. It's just amazing. You walk around. So much of it is just still there. Erfurt, where uh, Luther went to university, is there. He went to university uh, just at the time that the medieval mind was shifting in the way that, that, uh, that theology and philosophy were conceived, the way that all topics were taught. And, uh, and so Luther's in this time of enormous intellectual change and foment. He's an extremely young man. As a, just a young teenager, he's sent to the university, and uh, he is there to get his letters degree in order to go into law. And all, of, all this appears to be absolutely on schedule until 1505. Now, in 1505, some of you know this, Luther is on horseback and, uh, and he's going, he's, he's just outside of Erfurt. He's going through a forest. And by the way, the Germans in the forest have a thing. Uh, I, I've even written articles on this, the, the forest in Germany. My favorite line is by William Manchester, who says that Europe at the time was so forested that a squirrel could climb up a tree in Moscow and down a tree in Paris and never touch the ground. And it was because the forest was there. That explains the Brothers Grimm. It explains Little Red Riding Hood. Uh, but that's not our topic for today. But the, the forest, the forest was this big, dark, dangerous place. But Luther was kind of taking a shortcut, and he went through during a thunderstorm, and uh, lightning struck very close to him, and it knocked him off the horse, and uh, it scared the daylights out of him. And uh, so Luther, who thinks he's going to die, cries out to the patron saint, Saint Anne of Erfurt. And he says, save me, St. Anne, and I'll become a monk. The first thought of every teenage boy <laughs> going through the forest on the way to school. This was, you know, it was the most extreme thing. He did not want to become a monk. That was not his plan. That was not his father's plan. 
He is not the monkish type. This is the last teenage boy you would pick out and say, looks like a monk to me. I mean, Luther was in trouble all the time. He's, he's like a, this constant ball of energy. He's the kid every teacher knows is brilliant. And if he doesn't blow the place up, he's going to become something one day. And, and now he says he's going to become a monk. And, 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 but he means it. He means it. He's a traditional medieval Catholic. And once you make that kind of oath, you have to keep it or you're putting your soul in danger. So he goes back to tell his father, it did not go well, didn't go well at all. His father is furious, uh, but Luther enters the Augustinian monastery. Now, technically, just in case there are technicians here, Luther never became a monk. He became a friar. Now, I know some of you are saying, oh, that's very intellectually satisfying. Um, Okay, so a friar, you would think of a friar as a monk, but the difference between a monk and a friar is that uh, the, uh, the, the friar was more a part of the community, even though a part of the monastery. So you, you would never really see monks. They were in the monastery. They never came out. Friars were kind of monkish types who took the same oaths but, but would come out. But Luther was training to become a theologian uh, there in the, what was called the, uh, the, the White Monastery, the Augustinian Monastery outside of Erfurt. And again, By the time he has the experience on horseback, he's 1505. He's ordained in the cathedral there at Erfurt in 1507. He's a very bright young man. And of course, he progresses very far. He eventually becomes the the outstanding theology student, as you might know, and uh, eventually he's sent to Wittenberg, which is another interesting part of Germany because Germany's not a unified nation. Most Americans think of Germany as a nation. Uh, Germany wasn't a nation, German was a language, uh, and there were various principalities and states. Uh, Luther's most associated with Saxony. Uh, By the way, it wasn't until the second half of the 19th century that Germany became unified with Prussian dominance, and oh, hasn't that been a blessing for European history? Uh, That's another story. (laughs) Um, Germany was much more peaceful when it was not one nation. But again, they're peaceful now, so let's be thankful for that, but no one's talking about that either. Let's go back to the monastery, back to the 16th century. And, uh, and, and, and so you have the elector of Saxony, who's a prince. He's an elector because he's not only a prince, he's one of the German princes who has a vote to elect the Holy Roman Emperor. That's the election in which he is the elector, the elector of Saxony, who's basically the prince king of Saxony. He, he, he wants Wittenberg to become a model city of the new emerging German culture, and so it needs a great university, and it needs a hotshot young professor, and so they sent Luther. And, and so Luther went as a friar professor to teach in Wittenberg, but before he got there, he was already having monk trouble. Um, Luther once said, this is one of my favorite Lutheran lines, and there's so many favorite Lutheran lines. He said, if ever a monk could have been saved by his monkery, it was I. Uh, Luther, I mean, Luther was so serious at everything. He was totally serious about being a monk. And uh, he wanted to out-monk every other monk. Now, it's not because Luther didn't get the theology. It's because he did. He did. He understood the Catholic theological system, and, and he, but the problem is he understood his sinfulness, and, and so Luther could not be satisfied with the kind of externalism that, uh, that the other monks were concerned with. You know, the, the very idea, of, and frankly, of being a monk is, you know, you just do these things, you, uh, and, and by the way, it was horrible stuff. I've, uh, I've been to Luther's cell in the monastery, and, 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 and they called it a cell, and they say it's just a room. No, it really looks like a cell. Uh, it's a, I mean, they, they would sleep on cold uh, stone floors to deprive themselves of all pleasure. They, I mean, it was, it was a miserable life. They would wake up every few hours, at least every four hours, for the, the repetition of prayer. It was the same thing over and over and over again. And then they had to have a confessor. Every monk had to have a confessor, and, and Luther's confessor was a very wise old man by the name of Johann von Staupitz, who also just happened to have like the greatest German name, you know, <laughs> Johann von Staupitz. You don't stand too close to someone when you say it. <laughs> but uh, Johann von Staupitz was, uh, was his confessor, and Luther drove his confessor crazy, 
crazy. Now, remember, there is no doctrine of total depravity yet. Now, just hold on to that. You're dealing with a medieval Catholic doctrine of sin, Uh, and, and it didn't fit Luther because Luther knows that the problem is in him. It's in his heart. And so Luther would go to von Staupitz and he would confess. Now, this, this raises all kinds of questions, like how much trouble can a monk get into into a monastery? You know, and, and, but he would spend hours with von Staupitz and, and he would come back again and again and again. He'd, he'd spend his time in confession in a day that wasn't good enough. He'd come and found von, find von Staupitz and says, I have more to confess. And it, it really infuriated von Staupitz because he had things he needed to do. Uh, um, and, you know, being Luther's confessor was turning into a full-time job. So at one point, in exasperation, he said to Luther, don't come and hit me with these little sins anymore. Go, go do something. Burn down a village. And, uh, and then and don't come back and waste my time till you've done something. But, but when you think about the biblical doctrine of sin, Luther was right and von Staupitz was wrong. Because von Staupitz is this thinking, I need something big and external in order to come up with something, and then the sacrament of, the, the, you know, the, the, the confession, the sacrament of penance, and, and, and the absolution, and all of this. And Luther, he just never felt free of the bondage of sin. The more he knew himself, the more sinful he knew himself to be. You know, the last thing you wanted to tell Luther was look inside, because he looked inside and went, that's rotten, uh, which was true. So all this is bubbling up. Then uh, Luther, shortly after he becomes a, uh, ordained, goes, and by the way, his father came to see him perform his first mass. This is the father who was very, very mad that Luther did not become a lawyer, okay? But, okay, so Luther didn't become a lawyer. He became a priest. And so his father thinks, well, I can still be proud of my son because he's going to become a really big deal as a priest. And, and, and by the way, the father's made quite a bit of money during this time. So he, he pays for an entire entourage uh, to go from uh, the area there in Eisleben uh, to go to, uh, to Erfurt to see his son, the newly ordained priest, preside at his first mass, okay? That's a big deal. The problem is Luther can't do it. He gets up at the altar and he can't perform the mass. Why? Because he knows he is a sinner, How can he take what the Catholic Church says is the body transubstantiated of Christ and perform the priestly ritual knowing his own sin? So he ran, which was, I mean, you talk about a disappointed father, you know. Here's my son, the lawyer. Nope, nope, sorry, not going to be a lawyer. He's going to become a priest. That's certainly going to increase the family coffers. And besides that, what does the father want? Okay, do a little math with me here. Okay, what the father of Luther wants is grand. He wants a dynasty. He wants grandchildren, okay? That's not supposed to happen with a monk. And, but, but he settles himself on this. But then his son turns out to be kind of an incompetent monk, and he's not even a priest who can perform the Mass. And so it's humiliation that did not go well. But Luther ends up in Wittenberg because he's really, really smart. His academic gifts were spectacular. And so the Elector of Saxony arranges for him to come and to become a, really the leading light and the faculty of this emerging theological school at the University of Wittenberg. Shortly after his ordination, Luther does what priests are supposed to do. He makes a pilgrimage to Rome. And uh, he makes a pilgrimage to Rome, and uh, he does not like what he finds. So, almost like headlines we deal with now, he finds horrible sinful corruption right where the church is supposed to be most visible. Uh, and then he does other things. Just like a t- traditional medieval Catholic, he, on his knees, uh, climbs up the steps, stopping to pray at every step. And as he has bloody knees, he actually was hoping that by means of uh, famously climbing the steps on the knees, he might earn the release from purgatory of his grandfather, who had recently died. But the problem for Luther is, about halfway up the steps, he realizes, I don't believe any of this. 
which is kind of a problem <laughs> for a priest in Rome. But uh, I mean, Luther's at least honest with himself to go, do we really believe in a God who's going to release someone from purgatory because I'm crawling on my knees on stone steps? The whole logic began to, to fall away from Luther. And, and, and then again, he's looking at Rome, and what he does not see is holiness. What he sees is corruption. But Luther's not connecting all the dots yet. He begins to connect the dots because he becomes what is called the ordinary professor of theology and holy scripture at Wittenberg. Ordinary means he's teaching. Ordinary, is a, it doesn't mean he was not extraordinary. It means his appointment was ordinary, and, uh, and, and he was ordained. And so he, he begins to teach. He teaches how the scripture has never been taught before. He, he decides he's going to do something absolutely revolutionary that he doesn't even recognize as revolutionary. He just thinks this is the way Scripture should be taught. He opens the book, he reads the text, and he considers it word by word. Galatians. Romans. Also the Psalms and some other writings. What happens is, Luther's heart is moved by Scripture. The Word of God begins to break down the theological system he was taught. He comes to the conclusion that the gospel is not what he has been taught. It's not what the church is teaching. But he also comes to understand, remember when he went to Rome, he saw all this corruption. He begins to think this corruption is itself, it has to have theological roots. This isn't something that just happens. The, 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 the crookedness, the sexual immorality, and, and all of this, it's, I mean, even what was going on in the, uh, in the monasteries and in the nunneries, uh, just read Chaucer. Uh, he, he just knew this, is, this, has, this has a theological source. And so you have two things happening at once, his disgust and deeply troubled conscience over what he has received, and the power of the Word of God that keeps pulling him in. And, and indeed it does. It keeps pulling him in. And uh, so when you point to, uh, uh, you, you look for a point in which you can say, that's when Luther became a Christian. You're not going to find that point. Uh, you're not going to find that point. No, you're going to find references to such things as an experience he had in a tower, um, about justification by faith and, and, and other things. But, but the thing is that for Luther, it was, it, there, there may not have been a moment he could identify when all of a sudden he recognized what the gospel is and trusted Christ. But the reality is it became evident in him. And, and the other thing is he didn't at first intend to break with the Catholic Church. He intended to call upon the Pope to reform the Catholic Church. So the, uh, the 95 Theses, famously from 1517... They were not an announcement of the fact he was leaving the Roman Catholic Church. They were instead 95 disputation arguments about how the Roman Catholic Church should be reformed. And, and this is where Luther also, he, he's, he's not nearly at the Reformation yet. This posting, which is just an academic exercise, that's a, it's like announcing we're going to have an argument over these 95 things in the university. You're forewarned. Uh, come if you like. Uh, Luther isn't in a full-blown Reformation at this point. He actually thinks that the Pope is being deceived by the Curia. So he thinks the Pope would probably do the right thing if only someone told him the truth. Turns out that was not the truth, but, but you can understand how Luther, given his, his Roman Catholic uh, universe frame of reference, he would think that if he could just get the right word to the Pope, the Pope would do the right thing. So he addresses the 95 Theses to the Pope. Uh, again, it didn't go well. And uh, so it, it ends up that the Pope... By the way, what's really interesting is we now know that the Pope in 1517 knew about these 95 Theses. That's really important. What does that tell us? It tells us that the Roman Catholic leadership figured out we've got trouble, and it starts with M, and it's in Wittenberg. Uh, so Luther's arguments 
through the Archbishop of Mainz and others. It got to was also an elector. It's really messed up because the corruption was horrible. And he was in debt to people who, it was just a complete mess. This is German soap opera. This is like Dallas Dynasty, uh, Wuthering Heights, uh, you know, War and Peace. It's all together. And it was, all, it, was, it was in God's providence that all of this would happen so that the Reformation occurred because no one plotted it. I mean, it was just God's good pleasure that all of this would come together. And it came together spectacularly because Luther can't shut up. Uh, he, he, when, when, he, when he believes something to be true, he's going to say it. And Luther didn't just say it, he wrote it. The Reformation was a, a literary Reformation. The, uh, the Reformation happened, humanly speaking, at least in large part, because Luther was so prolific, because Luther was so convincing in the, English, in the German language uh, yeah, I would say he is now in the English language. But back then, he was very convincing in the German language. But Luther also understood what no one else seemed to understand at the time, and that was what we would now call communications theory. So Luther, with, uh, with his, uh, his, his compatriots, they actually plotted to get uh, these uh, tracts that he would write, treatises that he would write. Luther was, we now know, concerned with exactly how they would look. You, in God's providence, you really don't have the Reformation without the printing press. And uh, the Catholic Church was trying to keep stuff out of the hands of the people, including the Scripture. By the way, Luther graduated with a theology degree knowing almost no Bible. That, that's why he didn't know how to teach the Bible. That's why he went to Wittenberg and decided to teach the Bible. The only way he knew to teach the Bible was by opening the text and reading it, which had not happened to him. He, he, he was unacquainted. Luther graduated from university without a clear idea of how many books were in the Bible. That tells you how unscriptural it was. So the Catholics are trying to keep things out of the hands of people because it's dangerous. And by the way, this goes all the way into the 20th century that it's dangerous for the, the faithful, as Catholics call Catholics, to have you know, such theological ammunition in their own hands. Luther's trying to get it into hand. So, so by the way, that meant that Luther, right when Germans are beginning to read, and right when an emerging middle class is coming along that can actually buy things like books and tracts and treatises, Luther is filling the bookstalls with Lutheran tracts uh, on the Reformation, you know, uh, condemning the mass, uh, ask, writing about the corruption of the church, uh, describing the church of Rome as the whore of Babylon. That's a bestseller. <laughs> you know, you look at this and you realize this is how, you know, he spoke of the Babylonian captivity of the church. All of this, he's not yet leaving the church. In fact, Luther will argue that he never left the church, but that the church kicked him out, which is actually technically true. But by the time you get to uh, the early 1520s, uh, well, even by the time you get to 1520s, clear between 1517 and 1520, Luther has come to know the gospel. He's now the great defender of the gospel. And, and you cannot reduce it yet to uh, the solas of the Reformation. But Luther gets there. By the way, Luther gets there a lot in argument. You can see the Reformation happen because Luther puts himself at risk. And when I say Luther put himself at risk, I mean, his life was constantly at risk. Most of his adult life, Luther lived with knowing that faithful Catholics, including most importantly, Catholic princes, could gain favor with the Vatican and, and perhaps uh, grace from God by capturing Luther and executing him. Now, that's a horrifying situation in which to live. But Luther threw himself repeatedly into the battle. He would go, he would go for these disputations and would show up, and it's a, it's a pretty amazing thing. Uh, Luther didn't always win the argument, especially the very first, the Leipzig disputation, didn't go really well. Uh, Luther, they, they sent the very best Catholic arguer, <laughs> They, they sent one of the best, very best Catholic minds up against him. Luther didn't think he did very well. He didn't do very well. Uh, he only really escaped because he snuck out. Uh, and then, of course, we have the famous uh, uh, captivity of Luther in 1521 in the Wartburg Castle, where the elector of Saxony had him kidnapped in order to protect him. 
And uh, then he lived as Junker John, a knight. He grew a big mustache and he looked, uh, looked, looked like a knight. Uh, they hid him away. And what did Luther do, by the way, when he was in the Wartburg Castle? He translated the entire New Testament into the German language, which was an illegal act. It's just an amazing thing. And by the way, in so doing, Luther fixed the German language. The German language had no fixed formal form until Martin Luther translated the New Testament. And Martin Luther's New Testament is what gave German a common language, gave Germans a common language. The guy is just Teutonic, pun intended, uh, in, his, in his influence. Uh, but, but then, of course, like I say, disputation. So the, the way disputations happen was this. You would say, we're going to argue today this thesis. And uh, I, I've been able to stand in the disputation stand there at the University of Wittenberg. And so whoever was, was being examined would stand in the center and would offer an argument. And then by logical extension, the argument would be developed. Uh, thesis this, and then it follows, it follows. Then you would have people to argue against you. And then you would have some kind of resolution. Then everyone would go eat. Luther learns to argue this way. By the time you get to something like the Leipzig Disputation, which is the big thing, and again, he didn't do so well there, but this is what Luther understands. He understands by arguing. So let me put it this way. Luther began the disputations by believing in justification by faith. But the process of the actual disputation led him from justification by faith to justification by faith alone. It's actually in the middle of making the argument, Luther recognizes that if it's faith and, then it's not the gospel. And so part of the reason why I I like Luther is because I can see his mind at work. I can see Luther in the white-hot heat of theological controversy, hearing himself begin an argument with justification by faith and end an argument, justification by faith alone. This is why Erasmus, the humanist scholar, referred to Luther as Dr. Hyperbolicus. He, he said, it's not that Luther's brilliant. In fact, uh, uh, Erasmus was uh, extremely attracted to Luther uh, early on. Uh, but Erasmus, by his very definition, he's like the, the, the quintessential middleman. He was neither hot nor cold, you know. It was yes and no. Luther was not yes and no. Luther was yes or no. Erasmus called Luther Dr. Hyperbolicus because, as he said in one time in appealing to Luther, he said, you know, at justification by faith, just stop there. Just stop there. Uh, You've made your point. You don't need to press on to alone. That's exaggerating. And Luther thought, well, then you're missing the point entirely. If, if you deny the alone, you're actually denying justification by faith. If it's not alone, it's not justification by faith. By the way, um, little footnote, Benedict XVI, the retired pope, as weird as that is, uh, in his uh, commentary on Romans, he affirms justification by faith and actually credits Luther, the pope, well, the retired pope, he, he, just, he, he, he commended Luther for justification by faith. But then, just like Erasmus, he says, but not justification by faith alone. Well, that's where Luther comes to understand sola is the hinge of the gospel. That, that, that's where the gospel is. You deny sola, there's no gospel. And so all the solas, you know, come down to the fact they all are alone. It's not just Scripture, it's Scripture alone. It's not just Christ, it's Christ alone. It's not just grace, it's grace alone. And Luther's working all this out in the white, hot heat of controversy. Uh, By the way, I I love other parts of Luther. Uh, Luther was trained in a scholastic system in which the link word was ergo, ergo. So... um, Therefore, therefore, therefore. So, you know, it'd be an endless, endless set of syllogisms. A, B, therefore C. C, D, then for E. E, F, you got it. Okay, ergo. Ergo, 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 ergo. Okay. Luther said, here's the problem with ergo. You will scholastically ergo your way to hell. <laughs> All right. 
He said, he said that's the problem. You're going to get speculative. You're going to, we're, we're, scripture was left way back there in the rearview mirror. That's an anachronism, but nonetheless, if Luther had a rearview mirror, he'd agree with me. You know, scripture was left way back there in the rearview mirror. And instead, it's just, therefore, 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 ergo, ergo, ergo. And Luther said, you're ergoing to hell. Instead, he didn't like the Latin on that. He said, it's not ergo, it's Danach. Which means in the German, there. Because this is it. Here's the truth. What follows isn't a syllogism. It's just thud. There it is. Where does it go? It doesn't go anywhere. It's just found in Scripture. Danach. Don't ever go to hell. And, 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 and this, this is going on in his mind. It's all going on at the same time. He's translating the Bible. He's, he's also figuring out new forms of life. There's another reason I like Luther. It is because I, like Luther, would make a horrible monk. Um, I, like Luther, need a wife. Luther did not intend to have a wife. Even when the, the Reformation is beginning and uh, the nunneries are, and the monasteries are emptying themselves of those who are freeing themselves from being monks and nuns, even as he is arranging the marriages of his students, something I've never actually had to do as a seminary president, uh, even as he's arranging the marriages of his students, he really isn't intending to get married himself for a couple of reasons. One is he's a, he's a wanted man. You know, he could be executed at any time. That doesn't sound really fair. Uh, but, but he's persuaded to get married, and he actually arranges for Katerina von Bora to be married to someone else, but communication is slow. By the time that is found out, the other guy's already marrying someone else, and so Luther's associates say, why don't you marry her? Okay, now, here's something really interesting. Why did most lay Catholics in the 16th century hate Luther? It wasn't because of the Reformation. It was because a monk married a nun. Because according to the Catholic theology of the time, there is no such thing as a former monk, and there is no such thing as a former nun. So it was a violation of vows that brought shame. But for Luther, it brought endless happiness. Uh, So I, I said I have three oil portraits of Luther. Luther and Katie, they're one of the great love stories in all of human history. Um... It's so sweet. And Luther was so much better a man because of, uh, of Katie, and his Katie was such a loving wife. And uh, so I'm fast-forwarding through a lot of this, but uh, I have three oral portraits of Luther in my study. I have two of Luther, and the next portrait beside Luther is Katharina von Bora, Luther, Mrs. Luther, his Katie. Luther and Katie are the only, Luther is the only major figure from all of church history who is customarily accompanied by his wife uh, in art. And, uh, and by the way, not usually in the same picture. They're in the traditional German. You have a picture of, you have a portrait of Luther in its frame and a portrait of, uh, of Katharina von Bora, Luther, uh, Mrs. Luther in the other frame. I actually have oil portraits from the studio uh, of Nicholas Cranach uh, from Wittenberg going back to the 17th century in my study. It means a lot to me. I can look at those portraits and know that for hundreds of years, originating with someone who knew Luther, uh, you couldn't talk about Luther without talking about Katie. I cannot tell the story of what the Lord has allowed me to know in ministry without Mary, my wife. Um, I would never be able to do what I do without the companionship of this dear woman who loves me and walks with me. Um, If the story is ever told of what the Lord has done at Southern Seminary and all the rest, her portrait needs to be hung with mine uh, because I'm not explainable apart from her. And apart from the joy of the home, Luther and Katie invented the modern Protestant family. And again, they don't get credit for that, but they did. Luther and Katie invented the Christian family that we know about. And you say, that's ridiculous. Well, no, it's not. Because in medieval Catholicism, the highest spiritual state was being spouseless and childless. 
And Luther and Katie lived out before the world the joy of their marriage to say the highest Christian calling is not being a monk or a nun. It is raising children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Luther loved his kids. You know, people in that time didn't love their kids. At least they didn't want to show it. The higher you got in society, the higher your respect in society, the less you're supposed to care about your kids. And this, this goes right down to the 20th century, especially you look at the British nobility. What do they do? The British royal family. They send their kids as far as possible to school. Uh, they spend no time with them. Uh, they, they don't have meals with them. Luther was completely the opposite. There in his house, which is still there, which you can visit, he, he, would, have, he would have students over. That's why you have Luther's table talk. This is the collected sayings of Luther that he said at the dinner table because his students were often there at dinner. And, you know, Luther would be in the house. He refused to ban his wife and his children, from the time that he was in the home. So if Luther's there with his students, then his wife and his children are there. And he had boisterous children. You know, he had, he, had, he had boys running through the classroom when he was teaching, but it was his house and it was their home. Uh, and, and Luther, by the way, the father had to be absent quite a bit. And uh, he, he had a son, his firstborn son, who was quite strong-willed. And you talk about delayed discipline. Just imagine having you know, letters go by horseback. So at one point, Luther's far away from home. And, and Luther's just such a, a, again, a man in full. You can see the father in him. You can see the husband in him. His, his, his letters to his wife when he's away from her, and especially the last letter that he wrote, uh, the letter about his son, by the way, his son was a typical little boy who was misbehaving. And so he, he writes to Katie and says, you must take the sticks and thrash him <laughs> in the name of his father. And then he goes on to something else. And then he comes back to the boy and he says, but pray at bedtime, give him an apple and kiss his head and tell him that that is from his father too. Look at it and you go, oh my goodness, how sweet is that? His last letter to Katie when he knows he's dying and he's never going to see her again, he can't get back to her. He didn't expect to die. His descent into his last illness came very quickly. And he wrote to her and just imagine saying this. He said, Katie... You will miss me, but do not grieve for me, for I go now into the hands of the only one who loves me more than thee. Look at that. Oh, my goodness. That's a Christian man who loved his wife. And, uh, and I just, that's one of the reasons why I love Luther. Luther, you can't explain him without Katie. You can't explain him without his kids. You, you, you can't explain him without his students. You can't explain him. You can't explain him at 1520. Um, at the Diet of Worms, when he said, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. I, the popes have erred, councils may err, but the word of God will never err. That was not a man who just emerged out of a vacuum uh, to stand at that moment, for all of us. Uh, that was a man who, by the providence of God, got there um, by God's grace and by God's mercy, demonstrated to him through so many people uh, who had joined him in the Reformation, again, including his wife uh, and so many other colleagues. By the time he stood up, though, he was standing alone. Here I stand. And that's why many modern historians say, that's the birth of modern individualism. Luther said, here I stand. And in many ways, you can argue it was, but Luther wasn't arguing, I'm here because I stand on my own two feet. He said, I stand upon the authority of Holy Scripture. And I'm not going to be moved. I love Luther because of how the Pope disliked him. <laughs> you know, I, uh, some, sometimes a man just needs to be known by his enemies. And, uh, and, and, you know, sometimes you know a man by what his enemies call him. And in Exerge Domine, the name of the papal bull, the papal edict that called upon Luther to be killed, for, uh, for his treason against the church, the Pope addressed who he called the faithful. But he first of all addresses God at the beginning, and he says, Rise up, O Lord, a wild boar has invaded your kingdom, your vineyard. And you know, that would hurt some feelings. But Luther, he just thought, I'm the wild boar. 
you meant it to slander me? I got tusks, and I'm coming through your vineyard. You've been warned. Uh, I love Luther. He invented in so many ways. I say the modern Protestant family, by the way. I love cultural history. I love social history. And uh, these are a lot of things people don't think about. The British royal family was never really shown with intimacy with their children until the reign of Queen Victoria, and she didn't like it. So why did it happen? It's because she married Albert of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. She married a Lutheran prince. And Albert, Prince Albert as we know him, from his can. Some of you will remember that. Uh, Prince Albert of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha was uh, very much shaped by Luther and the Reformation. And he convinced Victoria to let them be shown at Christmas with their children and the children happy. Now, Victoria doesn't look particularly happy in the portrait, but, uh, but Albert looks very happy, and the children are very joyful. And then Albert of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha snuck into the context a Christmas tree, Tannenbaum, very German, very German. And it gets up there. So all of a sudden, if the queen has a Christmas tree, then everybody else can have a Christmas tree. And uh, if the queen has Christmas with her children, then other people like in the noble class can have Christmas with their children. It began to, again, so family intimacy becomes a big issue. By the way, that comes into the United States through Harper's Weekly, in which the picture of Victoria and Albert with their children is brought over. Uh, because of the concern about uh, the Germanness, Albert's mustache is taken off and his sword is airbrushed, so to speak, out of the painting. But that's when the American upper class, the Yankee class, also began to think, well, maybe we should have Christmas with our kids too. Uh, and so you look at all that, and it's actually a very interesting way that the logic of the Reformation in the family and the joy, even beyond the solas of the Reformation, made a material change. The world we know today is inexplicable. The notion of vocation. Uh, Luther, again, he entered a world in which the highest vocation was considered priestly, and he said, that's ridiculous. And he said, there are no high and low vocations. Vocation, vocatio, call, every Christian has a calling. And so you can't even look at Western civilization as, as it's developed in the modern age without understanding that Luther and then Calvin behind him and the other reformers stressed vocation. And, and, and that's why there is no clerisy amongst biblically-minded Christians. There's no class of ministers and then a class of everyone else with the ministers having a calling and no one else having a calling. The Reformation, Luther at the lead, stressed that every Christian has a calling. And then he said, the milkmaid who is faithful is more honorable to God than the priest who is unfaithful. And that was revolutionary. That was revolutionary. And uh, so you look at, at all this coming together, and you look at Luther. Uh, L- Luther, uh, you have to like him because he made mistakes too. And, and, and Luther never made any small ones. I mean, everything he did was either glorious or catastrophic. There was very little, there was very little in between and, uh, and, and that, that's true, too. Luther was not perfect. He would be the first to say it. Uh, Luther could be ill-tempered. He was a medieval German. He could be quite bombastic. He was marked by a lot of the horrifying prejudices of his day, including a deep anti-Judaism. Uh, I do not say anti-Semitism. That's a slander against Luther. He was not an anti-Semite. He, had, he was held to an anti-Judaism. What's the distinction? He did not dislike the Jewish people. He wanted them to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Judaism that he, uh, that, that, that he saw as, rightly, as the repudiation of the gospel, the rejectors of Christ. But he did not want the Germany to be free of people who were, who were Jewish by lineage. He wanted, he wanted the Jewish people to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which, by the way, in 2019 is just as politically incorrect uh, as, uh, as any other form of... Uh, of the exclusivity of the gospel. Uh, Luther was, uh, well, uh, the right word to use here is scatological. He used language that would get most of you fired. (laughs) And certainly the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, He would, uh, he would say, when he addressed the Pope, he would sometimes use toilet language 
which was very medieval German because it was never very far away. Trust me, if you can imagine living in a medieval world, you were never far from everything. Luther threw it at the Pope. Verbally, because it was too far to hit Rome otherwise. But he, uh, he spoke of it nonetheless. Luther was a, was a man of his time. We're all a man of our time. So you, you can look back at some things you can say, I wish Luther had known this. I wish Luther had known that. Someday, yes, but not, you never, Luther never has to fear this. No one's going to be able to shake anything that he taught from the inerrant and fallible Word of God. Calvin and the Genevans came rightly to the conclusion that Luther had not taken the gospel, the logic of the Reformation, far enough. Uh, Luther was a medieval German. He continued uh, the Marian festivals. He, uh, he, he, Lutheran ministers, in some cases, continued to wear vestments. Uh, and, and Lutheranism, shortly after Luther's life, uh, separated between the Lutherans and the Philippists. Uh, the Lutherans followed Luther. The Philippists followed Philip Melanchthon, who was uh, less uh, precise uh, than Luther on many issues. And, uh, and so it, it, with Lutheranism, from the 16th century onward, after Luther's death, it all kind of depends on which Lutheran you're talking to. Uh, but nonetheless, the Calvinist Re- uh, Reformation took the logic a good deal further. Calvin said that, but Calvin never failed to give tribute to Luther, whom he actually called our father in the Reformation. Uh, you can't explain who we are without Calvin. You can't explain Calvin without Luther. And uh, then, of course, we have the huge question in church history. How do you have the gap of so many centuries between when the gospel was lost and the 16th century and the Reformation was recovered? The good news is it was never totally lost. The bad news is institutionally it was not only lost, it was denied. So looking to Luther as we come to a conclusion is also a warning to us. There is nothing in this life institutionally, as a movement, as an organization that stays done. You can never in this life, given the power of sin, you can never look to your church, you can never look to your seminary, you can never look to your organization or your movement and say, it's safe forever. It's never safe forever. It's only safe insofar as it is tethered unquestionably to the absolute sole authority of the Word of God. And Luther understood the temptation is going to be to undo everything that has been gained at the strongest point, which is sola, alone. So, finally, I find great, great comfort from Luther in knowing that When we stand on Scripture alone, grace alone, Christ alone, when we stand upon justification by faith alone, to the glory of God alone, in the truest sense, we are never alone. And that includes that great cloud of witnesses. Amongst them for me, very prominently, Luther but I'm not thankful to Luther. I'm thankful to God for Luther, as I hope one day others will be thankful to God for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us inspiration from a man whom you greatly used. May you show your glory in this generation in no less vivid a sense. It'll be to your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.